Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards that never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the sequel to Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2 Hellbound. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, my co-host and comic book writer, <laughs> Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I feel like this movie, a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, my frequent collaborator, comics artist, and certified vampire aficionado, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Um, agreeing that it is indeed a mixed bag. Um, and I'm talking everything. Like, if you if you want it, they got it. But we'll talk about that. Such sides whatever your shape. favorite geometric shape is, it's represented here. Oh it yeah. Always, this always feels like a Stefan sketch from SNL. Like, welcome to the hottest new club. It's in an abandoned and insane asylum. We've got leaky pipes, British colonialism, and mental patients solving puzzles. <laughs> I'm so ready for all the Yu-Gi-Oh jokes. I'm gonna make a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh jokes. All right. Okay. And I'm gonna act like I understand them. Don't worry about I'm- it. I, I only know about Yu-Gi-Oh from Brett, who is just describing to me Yu-Gi-Oh. Yu-Gi-Oh mm-hmm. is Hellraiser for children. Continue. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh is a story of a boy who solves a puzzle, which makes him possessed by the ghost of a hot pharaoh who murders people with games until they found one game that made a lot of money. And then they just played that forever and ever. It's called Not Magic the Gathering. Right. And now that that's out of the way, our special guest tonight, joining us from her own hell, it's podcaster and critic from Graphic Policy and Deep Space Dive, Alana Levin. Alana, how are you tonight? I'm only mildly traumatized. That's doing pretty good. I'm excited to. Yeah, I'm excited to talk more about Hellraiser. I I was working on making a playlist for you guys that was just songs called Hellraiser, regardless of whether or not they had anything to do with Hellraiser. Wow. I am 100% there. I'm going to I'm going to actually do it this time. We were going to do it last time. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it. This is going to happen. We're going to do it. It's happening. Well, so so far my Hellraiser playlist consists of Ozzy Osbourne Hell song Hellraiser which was released for a future Hellraiser movie. Motorhead's Hellraiser which was actually they'd written that for Ozzy Osbourne but you know which version do you like more is a, it's an open question. Hellraiser by Sweet which is not about Hellraiser at all. It's a it's at, at any way, shape, or form, but they're, you know, a British glam band. And then uh, Hellraiser, which is Joe Lynn Turner doing a cover of Hellraiser. And then I guess the other two songs in this playlist so far are both Judas Priest for obvious reasons. Pain and Pleasure is the first, and the next is Hellbent for Leather. Yeah, that checks out as a Judas Priest song. So mm-hmm. basically, we're just going to put the entire discography of Depeche Mode on here while we're at it, I mm-hmm. assume. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Master Servant, okay. Um, Man, if we... I would have believed it if Pinhead had at any point said, reach out and touch Faith. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think that's in the space one. Hellspacer. Have... So this is the this was the only other Hellraiser I'd seen. Um, I am going to see Hellraiser 3 at some point because it stars both Daxes from Deep Space Nine. And so mm. as the host of a Deep Space Nine podcast, I'm contractually obliged to watch Hellraiser 3 for the what? presence of 
crazy coincidence because that would have been years before Deep Space yes. Nine. Yeah, yeah well, had... and the other decks. And Garrick is in the first <laughs> Deep or first yeah. Hellraiser. So basically, like, I don't know why. I. I've been on a little Deep Space Nine kick today because I just found out that there is a recording of Alexander Sadiq and Andrew Robinson uh, reading out loud a fanfic where they are. It is 20 years later and they are husbands. Yes. This is what they did during COVID. That sounds legit. It's yeah. amazing. So but so but that is to say this this is this was the other Hellraiser movie that I'd seen before. Yeah, and um, this this one it's interesting that there are so many different people involved in the making of it because it like just picks up right at the end of the first one. Like there's literally like a previously on at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good way to kick off your expectations for it because this movie mm -hmm. is going to spend a lot of time either recapping or rehashing the first movie. Yeah. Yeah, and that's pretty much the whole plot like this movie's plot is mostly like remember when the I, hellraiser happened i clocked the timestamps from 2120 to the 24 minute mark is nothing but pure flashback clips of the first movie yeah that's and they shot this like immediately upon completion of the first movie as well now, this movie has less weird adr and and stuff like that it is so it is directed by Tony Randall, who is mostly a special effects artist. He did the special effects on Escape from New York and a bunch of other stuff. His notable directorial movies other than this are Ticks, which is a horrible horror movie, and The Fist of the North Star live-action adaptation, um, <laughs> which was also written by uh, Peter, him and Peter Atkins, who is the writer on this, uh, who, who wrote... Amazing. Who wrote The Fist of the North Star adaptation, wrote the other later Hellraisers, and uh, a bunch of the Wishmaster movies. So even though this movie came out like a year afterwards, it feels like enough time for them passed that they're like, okay, it's not in England. It's in America, even though we still are filming it all <laughs> in England. Because even if it's just like the cop showing up with guns, there isn't, there's not any of the first movies like referring to it being England, but nobody has an English accent weirdness. Yeah. They seem to have settled on the location a little bit. Although other things were something. not so settled. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, to some extent, I think it still works in its favor that there's this weirdness about where exactly it is because it, it's unsettling. Hmm. But this again, this does again start Claire Higgins and Ashley Lawrence. We also have Kenneth Cranham and Imogen Borman. And the description of this, Kirsty, who's our main character from the first one, is brought to an institution after the horrible events of Hellraiser where the occult obsessive head doctor resurrects Julia and unleashes the Cenobites and their demonic underworld. Uh, and guys, would you say that this one is spoopy as a not scary, spooky as in a little scary, terrifying as in very scary, or generally existentially disconcerting? It definitely still has m moments of scary, but it also has way more spoopy than the first one did. See, I actually think this is scary. I like this film less than the first one because the first mm -hmm. film is genius. This film is not. I also <laughs> think this movie is at times scarier than it. Or perhaps it was just that it had more things in it that I said, I don't want to watch this and proceeded to sort of sit there and like wait for Frank to tell me when people were no longer self-mutilating. My enjoyment of this movie was pretty dependent on how much scenery Kenneth Cranham was chewing at the time. Yeah, hmm. I mean... 
Yeah. When he's being unrestrained and quiet, I was having a tough time. Once we get to the last act and he starts heating up, uh, I was real into it. Yeah, we'll we'll get into why, but I I actually, I kind of like this one better than the first one. (gasps) Um, But we'll we'll discuss why. There are are reasons, but that have very little to do with the plot. Um, But I, I do think this one is, is maybe even more existentially disconcerting than the first one, especially once we get to that Kenneth Cranham last act. There are visuals that will stick with me in this movie mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that are are unleasant. Uh, speaking of which, they include blood, guts, uh, violence of a sexual they nature, are. surgery, amputation, hospitals, and bad doctors, and all sorts of physical trauma. If it bothers you, it is here. Yeah. Is there like, animal death in this one? I forget. I don't mm, think there's any. I don't think so, but one. there's some real nightmarish looking babies. And there's some, <laughs> yeah. there's some human death. There's all sorts of crazy death. And one of the most mm-hmm. whack reveals. I didn't remember this from when I first because I've seen Hellbound a couple times. And um and one of them was relatively recently. And then of course the the time when you know I actually made the notes. Um and we'll get there. But yeah, you know, this movie in terms of the reveal, like certain things about this movie are legitimately terrifying. Some of the, there's a lot of spoopiness. I assume uh, when you're talking about terrifying surprises, we're both talking about the surprise laser balls. The, when it just briefly no, turns into a bullet hell game. At the I, end. <laughs> right. I mean, there's that, the, the, the ending of this. Pew, 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 laser balls. Yeah, well, laser balls. No. Don't scare me. The, the the reveal that scared me had to do with the Cenobites. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but we'll talk about that. As for me, the thing where I was like, I don't want to see this was a human doing a thing to a human body that could be done in real life. And that is yeah. one of the reasons why that was hard for me to watch. So I, I definitely- That was very upsetting. I would not have been able to see this movie by myself. Like I needed to see it with someone who had a higher horror threshold for me. So they could tell me when it was okay to look back at the screen. Yeah, I am not traumatized for having seen this movie. Like I, I, this is the second time I saw it. If I was traumatized by it, I wouldn't have gone to see it a second time. But yeah. if you are someone who was a little bit more sensitive, you might want to see it chat with a chaperone who can tell you when you can look back. If that makes sense. I, yeah, I, I don't think I said this either. Uh, there's some, some of that same great blood and maggots burrowing into people imagery that are that are in the first one. So like I know that that for me was like a that was a line that they were hitting that I was like, I oh no, this is not no. Mm-hmm. And I can't yeah. tell you why, but I didn't like Kyle. <laughs> Boo, Kyle. I have yeah. Yeah. Kyle's the, the useless one. He's so yeah. useless. I mean one, he's fuck just off, one Kyle. Kyle. Less. He's like hitting on patients. He, like, uh, yeah. No, no. I mean, uh, Kyle is is not the worst person working at this hospital, but that's a no, very low not. bar. Yeah. <laughs> I guess his argument would be like, "Oh, I figured it out. You're telling the truth. You're not crazy, which means you're not a patient, which means this is above board. None of it's you're above not crazy. Board. <laughs> you suck, you are hot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This hospital, like hannibal lecter is like fucking the the gold standard compared to this fucking hospital mm-hmm. um <laughs> well, let's uh let's let's call the end of the non-spoilers section there and, and say at this point we're going to dive into the uh the story of the movie and anything from this point is is uh gonna have spoilers in it so if you haven't seen the movie you want to watch it before we talk about it this is the time to go do that otherwise we're going to jump into to talking about what actually happens in 
Hellbound. I have a question. Sure. How hard is it to actually solve the Lamentation figuration? Because this movie (laughs) implies that you need a puzzle-solving savant in order to solve it. Well, in the first movie, uh, like, Kirstie just solved it while just fucking around, not really looking at it in a hospital bed. I think it's it's sentient, you know, so you, like it, when it wants to be solved, it'll be solved. Mm, that's I interesting. Like that. I like that. that that's always that how I right. felt. That checks I out. Yeah, because I think like because because most of the solving of this puzzle seems to be the, the process seems to be just touching it a lot. Like, you know, people just kind of gently stroke it um and then it starts moving you know um, there's a lot of puzzle massaging in this one one of my favorite parts of the movie <laughs> is the villain thinking that if he sticks to the exact wording he can find a loophole to all of this and then pinhead being like we're more about the spirit of the law than the word of the law <laughs> it's more we, like see your, we see your loophole we disregard it <laughs> yeah yeah this, demon um... lawyer has no authority in the hellraiser world <laughs> Oh, yeah. as, as we mentioned, this starts with the previously on. They basically just recap the whole first movie um, exhaustively. They show they a lot do of things multiple times. There's are, two are very detailed recaps of the first movie in this film, which is interesting because they they go hard on that recap, but then they completely disregard the fact that the the house in the last movie blew up right at the very end and now the house is still there and there was no like like draco lich that came along and like took the the box away um (laughs) so i i I don't know what to tell you it's unclear how we even with all the recapping it's kind of unclear how we get from the end of hellraiser one to the beginning of this movie um and it's like the next day all we find you out know? about the boyfriend is the cops just let him go. Yeah. I mean, he if was I telling, was him, I'd be outie. Yeah, so he, he was certainly not he, appearing in this film. But I think that's relevant, right? So she gets locked up overnight for observation because she's hysterical. But the boyfriend, yeah. who's more, who's like useless, but also a man, he's like, pretends that everything's fine and he didn't just see crazy ass shit happen and he gets to go home. No, he didn't pretend to shit like things were fine. He's had the exact same story. The cop even says like, yeah, that checks out with what your boyfriend says, but we so just let him worse. go. That's even worse. They just let him, right. So the man gets out. Yeah. Yeah. They had the exact same story. And uh, I guess, you know, he did run into the situation later and she was like, there's shit chasing me in a, you know, People just died. It wasn't me. I definitely didn't kill them. And I guess he's like, well, she said she didn't kill him. I wasn't there for it. So they just let him go. He saw monsters. Yeah, Yeah, he did see the Cenobites. He was willing to testify to monsters. And they're just like, eh, get out of here. (laughs) They're like, you would not be an interesting addition to the plot of this second film. Please leave. he was just as useless as Kyle. I couldn't have two useless dudes. Yeah, he would have just gotten away in the way of the raw charisma that was Kyle. <laughs> yeah. Kyle. Before we before we get to the uh, the actual hospital, we get the origin of Pinhead at the beginning here, uh, or some of it. I guess he's in the French Foreign Legion and finds a box. And oh, I interpreted it. that as some British colonialism. Yeah. Mm. You know, especially with that name, Elliot Spencer, that feels like some real British colonial. That that sounds like the name of a British colonel. 
Colonel now, this Spencer. does feel to me like a Joker thing, which like giving him a name and an origin doesn't make Pinhead a better character. No, absolutely not. I I kind of hated that about the Cinnabites, um, but then it becomes relevant to the plot later. But yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting to see this guy. Like at first, it seems kind of interesting, and then you actually see all the pins driven into his head, um, and that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it is fun. I like that intro. I mean, okay. Nobody also nobody can solve the Millennium Puzzle while sitting on. A chair or a, couch or a bed or a stool. No. Or... Yeah. You have to got... be sitting on the floor, feral, to solve this puzzle. Yeah. You need to be sitting on the floor and hopefully just, you know, into it. It does seem like Pinhead's main power control over fish hooks on chains. Apparently, worms put the nails in. That's another thing. Oh, yeah. weird worms came out and i think that that's also the same there's some sort of wormy situation with the with the doctor later but it yeah it looks like the worms put the nails in him the box also has a clitoris at some point um yes yeah so um and so as i was discussing earlier about the box and the stroking well it seems like there's the master hell intelligence which is the floating pyramid the Leviathan. It's a pyramid. It's it's a floating diamond of terror. And I have to say, I have never seen geometry be quite as menacing as when the box is like, oh motherfucker, now we're an oblong diamond. And it's like pfft. and then you see that shape menace. And like everybody reacts to that shape, not just not just the box turning itself into the oblong diamond, but in fact, when you see the giant like cyclopean monolith of a diamond in space at the distance which is this god and people are like responding in horror and it truly is scary i had to give the movie props for that that was impressive it made a diamond pretty damn scary no like really Mm -hmm. i feel like this movie picks up a once they open the portal to hell and they go into hell and then it really gets and it really is like at full speed once we get uh, the Shannard Cenobite, like Shannard becomes a Cenobite. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, uh, the, the floating octahedral of doom is now one of my favorite uh, Eldritch horrors. Mm-hmm. Oh shit, a diamond. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all know about um, Ramiel. This movie did predate that. Ramiel's yeah, a little yeah. bit more, uh equilateral which makes it more scary for me but um you know anyway ramiel being the uh the the diamond the octahedral uh angel from neon genesis evangelion which is oh that makes sense yeah you put some eyes on this diamond and you got yourself one hell of like a old testament style angel just a winged eyed diamond shooting shadow pillars and bullet hell laser balls at you yeah yeah, before that, we, we get Kirstie awakening in the mental hospital uh, with a terrible police officer who will not be plot relevant uh, and an even worse doctor and Dr. Chenard mm. and a Kyle. Oh, Dr. Chenard. Kyle. One thing I think we can all agree on is Ashley Lawrence is fantastic again in this movie. Yes, she yes. she goes hard. Um, I want to talk about Dr. Chenard's uh, intro. Mm-hmm. It's great. Because he's got like a live, 
monologuing while he's dremeling a woman's head open while she's awake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. And then he, he yeah. like he does okay, so he's like monologue, monologue, monologue. And then he's like dremeling for two seconds and he's like, okay, I'm done. And then he leaves. And he's like, you guys take care of the rest of this. I don't know. I just I just was here to like open up her skull well, he and drum. He doesn't know how it. to solve puzzles, so he couldn't figure out how to put her head back together. Kenneth yeah. Branham comes into this movie at an 11. Mm-hmm. It's a level of being so fucking extra. And I was so into it. And then it takes him another like hour 15 to reach that level of energy again. To turn it up to 15. Yeah. Well, yes. He- he, that's the most emotion that he has while he's dremeling until he becomes like a, a like wormy penis cinnabite. But mm-hmm. the uh, line that's going to from this movie that's going to stick with me is, "And to think I hesitated." Yeah, that one. <laughs> that one. That's that is. I, I feel like that is the um, Jesus wept of this movie. The and to think I hesitated is is so. Yeah, it's so yeah. fucking good. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, this is the point where like they have a she overhears the doctor having a conversation about the bloody mattress uh, with with the uh, police. I and, have it in my notes as the Lazarus mattress, and she's Ooh, like, "Oh, get like rid it. of that." There's definitely blood from Julia in that, and if you know. Frank could be brought back from the blood on the floor, then Julia can come back from the blood on the mattress. So make sure they get rid of that. I um, actually feel like this brings up one of the big problems I had with the first hour is how much of it is the, uh, like essentially the first hour of the first movie, but with Julia now in the Frank role. And what you have here is like, except in the first movie, it was strange and completely alien and otherworldly and so hard to like understand and piece together and now Kirsty understands the rules of what's going on we audience understand the rules of what's going on so it feels like a lot of the same events but a lot of the mystery and mystique and that terror of the unknown about it has now been taken away you know that would bother me if not for the reason that I do love this movie um possibly more than the first one which is the performance from claire higgins as julia who has mm-hmm. gone full supervillain at this point like she has gone yeah. off the fucking deep end because throughout the first one you see her like struggling with whether or not to be evil yep. and uh whether to listen to frank and you know she is ultimately like one of the villains of that movie but in this one from like from the point she is resurrected she is playing this at like 11 and oh, like yeah. she is doing so much like such an incredible job of being evil in this movie in a way that very few like horror movies in general give female characters a chance to be um, yeah. bad one of the things is that like the movies were considering having julia be the reoccurring villain of all the Hellraiser movies. Like, it was going to be about her. Yeah, that was the that was the plan. And it yeah, shows I mean, that here. At yeah. one point in this movie, she slaps Kirsty unconscious in, like, one blow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, one line, shot. The line she has, again, my other favorite line after, to think I hesitated, was her whole fairy tale little line she has. Oh, yeah. I'm no longer just the wicked stepmother, now I'm the evil queen. 
take your best like, shot, I, Snow White. I was like, I, ah! that's <laughs> such a good line. Like this is this is someone who knows in her heart of hearts that she is a villain and she embraces it completely and fucking good on her. <laughs> yeah, she is. And she's also like a, a fun villain you know because she does have legit revenge reasons and she she, she's pretty she's great um i also really love the imagery of her like the skinless her because before we had skinless frank and then having skinless her being the exact same like monstrous um it's just really cool (laughs) no the image of her bloody skinless body and the completely vivid blue eyes emerging from the mattress is just unforgettable terrifying and amazing and i mean one of the great visuals of the movie is her doing the whole eyes without a face thing when they're like wrapping her in the bandages and like when they have her wearing his white linen suit and she's like, this is sort of surrealist, isn't it? I'm yeah. like, one, yes. I'm glad you've like lampshaded that for anybody who was somehow missing it because it's important for them to not miss that. Yes, that is indeed literally surrealist. And yes. it looks so good, so good. Um, and she's like really hot, kind of, right? Like, let's yeah. be honest. Oh, yeah. She's hot and she's horny. Like, she is a horny mm-hmm. mummy oh. in that scene. She oh, is, yeah. she like, is a horny oh, mummy. I'm glad we brought up that scene because I really want to talk a little bit about uh Chenard's I think that's how you is that how you pronounce it? Am I doing that? Yeah, Chenard? I think so. Chenard. Chenard's deliciously 80s Miami condo. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about his condo. We'll get there because I want to talk about it when we get there. Cause like there's a lot of things in that particular scene that uh, that are pretty great. So white. So white. Everything in that is stained. You're not getting that those blood stains out of any of anything she touches. <laughs> I know. She's just like, hey, what's up? I'm redecorating. Yeah. Just like and but the paint is her blood yeah this uh so this this whole like first couple scenes like like so they're not terribly important but they are you know plot wise they set things up like uh you know she is uh kirsty is visited by a skinless uh soul who writes on the wall that uh you know, they're in hell and, and she needs to come save them. She assumes it's her dad, which it's not. Kind of makes it worse that she tastes the blood. Yeah. Don't oh, taste it. Don't decision. put the hell blood in your mouth. Yeah, well, it starts yeah. with the radiator. And that's when you know that things are bad. Because whenever there's a, whenever somebody in, a, in the movie is looking at a radiator, you know, it's not good. That would be dirty even if it was terrestrial blood. Yeah, <laughs> but this is un, like weird hell blood. Yeah, yeah which oh. I mean, I feel like. If Clive Barker had directed this, that would have some sort of psychotropic effect, right? Like Hellblood so, would be a drug. Mm-hmm. So I have a question, and this is a real question, especially because like maybe y'all know more about like film history. It feels like this is almost one of the stock horror movie sequel tropes. Is your final girl from the first movie is in a mental hospital? Yes. In the yeah. second, but. Mm-hmm. A, was this one of the pioneers of this trope? Like, when this came out, was this one of the first? And also, it does feel like it takes it more seriously. Like, the mental hospital is your primary setting. It is the plot of the whole movie versus where it normally is, where it's either where your protagonist starts and then gets out to actually have the plot, 
or it's where the new protagonist goes and visits the original protagonist. Yeah, well, this one, the, the mental hospital thing in this one is more about Dr. Shenard than it is about Kirsty. Like she's there. And I don't know if it's if it's where it stands really and like the the um the advent out of, of that trope. Um, because in this the, the the mental hospital, it's not about like it's not about mental illness, it's just about horror. Um, so we have this mental hospital that is basically, I mean, it is the horror of the film. Um, and, uh, I, I don't think that they really take, it's not so much Kirstie's, um, issues being taken seriously so much as just them taking seriously the idea of the horror of this mental hospital that is, uh, that is not like, it's, it's not a general hospital this is like dr shenard's special uh torture dungeon hospital has a basement hallway full of people that he's just torturing and allowing to scream yeah. and go through no, shit it, in the basement this is like a yeah. multi-tiered insane asylum where you have the good insane people who like are getting care and like get to walk around in the gardens and then you have the like sub layer of people who are I, you know, these are the people who know are on Medicaid, right? Who he's mm-hmm. like torturing, who are not being paid, who, whose insurance is not covering this and who he's using for science. And- the yeah, they're just waiting around to be murdered. Up. They just don't know it yet. The yeah. basement is straight up Arkham Asylum levels of decor. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like Arkham Asylum meets the boiler room, you know, because on one half there's, you know, they're, they're running all of the hot water for the city or something on one half of this mm-hmm. chamber because these pipes it's like oh, it's I, like giant industrial complex factory pipes and then on the other side it's all cells that are like dripping and they're padded so but much one guy dripping. Is like, yeah one guy has a, a crucifix in his cell which i'm like that doesn't seem like it's safe because everybody else is like you know in straight jackets and trying to like pull at themselves but um i know there's all the human rights abuses i'm also real worried about those pipes it's been years since anyone for maintenance came and took a, take a look at those yeah and like who who can they call to maintain those pipes like what which plumbers can come down there and be like um well, Chenard has proven that he can handle pretty much anything with a phone call including getting a bloody mattress delivered to his house so it's true. bloody yeah. mattress from an active crime scene. Not the uh, weirdest thing a moving company in Middle <laughs> England has had to do. Not just the moving a- company, the cops. The cops are yeah. like, sure, we will send you this still bloody mattress from an active crime scene that that like they are still working at that point. But oh, look, yeah, if so- anybody's gonna successfully be able to get the cops to give them a still bloody mattress for quote unquote reasons, it's a doctor. Yeah. yeah, I feel like Shenard and that cop have like a Jack Lawrence Hannibal Lecter relationship. <laughs> yeah. Shenard's yeah. just being Jack super Robert. creepy, and this cop's just like, "Man, you did! You're so smart. You solved it again, Shenard. How did you Jack know Robert. all? How did you know all the places the body would be buried, and like in all the different limb locations? It's just that smart. Yeah, that psychology degree really paying off." I don't know how Dr. Shenard is supposed to be like delving deeper into the labyrinth of the mind when he goes to a patient and he's like, I'm going to poke you for like 
like two times and then i'm like okay so and so's gonna take care of you okay bye no he means literally he is going to get deeper into the mind yeah he's gonna do more brain surgery i think that's why he can't solve the millennium puzzle is because he can't he can't like solve the labyrinth he has to like bulldoze through it just much like Mm. he just he's like i'm gonna go into the mind but i'm gonna really like for real like i'm gonna go in there like i'm put my finger in and be like here's some thoughts on my finger smells great or something (laughs) so i was a little confused on that point like was it that he himself couldn't solve it or was he trying to find a loophole where if he could get someone else to solve it like he could get into hell while the person who solved it would be taken by the cenobites but i'm not sure why or what his plan was if he if Julia hadn't betrayed him. Apparently it was important enough for him to murder this girl's parents. Um, yeah. Cause their yeah. death in some way. I'm um, I'm very unclear on what Shannard thought was going to happen. I think he was too. I mean, right. his whole apartment, you can tell like his whole apartment is like very sparse and very like postmodern min- minimalism. And then you go to a study and it's like fucking it's the British you, Museum in there. Yeah, British yeah. Museum in there, like te- Ordo Templi Orientis or whatever. Like they have a, you know, he has a bunch of Giger shit on the wall and he's got phrenology heads and he's got d- Egyptian death altar yeah. like you do. The study he's been stealing says shit from, like, every, from every company, every country that he visits. The study yeah. says, I listen to Bauhaus. And the apartment wants to talk to you about Huey Lewis and the news. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and of course, for some reason, Kyle thinks it's weird that he has a bloody mattress delivered to his house and follows him home and hides. Good for Kyle. A... What? Good for Kyle. This yeah. is objectively like... good for Kyle. And I, Kyle, Kyle does nothing actually wrong. And I just irrationally hate him. Kyle behind, oh. hides behind one flowing curtain. Um, and that is apparently, yeah, he's got like a plus 10 in stealth. Um, <laughs> he is just, if this had been the hunger, behind the curtain. this has been the hunger that would have been the best strategy. Like he would have been so covered. Like no one would ever would have seen him like guaranteed. Or he yeah. would have just been part of the scenery. Like Dr. Shenard would be like, what are you doing? And then Kyle like holds up a cigarette and he's like, oh, oh, sorry. I, I, you're, you're thinking, okay, cool. Um, how's. Catherine Deneuve. Can I just say, though, as a writer, it's such a relief whenever there is a character who smokes, because then you can have them think and light a cigarette. It's great. It's a great device. They have something to do with their hands. You can do wavy shit with smoke and fire. Like, it's... Why do you think Constantine has stayed around so long? Right? (laughs) Listen. Yes. Look, I know we've reduced, like, smoking rates by so much, but was it worth making our protagonist less cool? I... It was. Yeah, It definitely was. Yeah, no, smoke is smoke is great. You got like magical swirls, right? Um, but don't smoke, kids. Light some Results. incense. Yeah, also don't incense. cut yourself a bunch with razor blades, which is the next thing that happens. Oh yeah, Ooh. that was yeah, so- not a fun. Like he, so, he gets a guy that is clearly delusional and is imagining that he's being eaten by bugs, which you get to see what the guy is seeing, which is just wonderful. That was really what I Everything- wanted to see. About this man this being was... eaten by bugs, and then you also get to see what he's actually doing, which is uh, chopping himself up with a razor blade on this mattress, um, which is the worst scene up until uh, Julia 
hugs him out of the mattress, which is like fantastic. Her arms yes. just come out of out of the mattress. Oh, that was cool. I, I would watch her amazing. like feral sexual like devouring of this guy i felt i mean this is the you know this is a big warning like patient abuse like basically dr chenard's like here i'm gonna take this this patient of mine and sacrifice him and just give him a razor blade like dr chenard enables this guy and he's basically like okay now go get rid of all the bugs on you with this razor blade um very dull razor blade by the way he's got like an old school shaving razor blade like a barber's razor blade that scene to me is the most yeah it's hard that, to that was this was the scene like that i had to not watch and then I'm, but then i got to watch when she, when julia comes out of the mattress that i can watch there is because yeah. maybe it's no. just because of everything involves like xenobites and it, there's just a lot more like craziness and elaborate like dark fantasy elements to it that like makes a lot of the other like most of the deaths in this movie like fun this is to me by far the most like truly violent upsetting yeah. horrifying mm-hmm. and disturbing scene in the whole movie yeah yes. no, it's I, rough because i would i would almost recommend people skip the first part of this scene if the second part of the scene wasn't so fantastic like mm-hmm. this feral bloody skinless julia like reaching up out of this mattress and like slowly chasing him across the floor is fantastic. Like, I mean, that's what I mean. That's why you got to go and have a buddy. That's the only way you can see it is to make your buddy tell you when he stops slashing himself with the razor so you can then open your eyes and watch Julia engulf. Yeah, it's so goopy. Like, it's a him. goopy resurrection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it was goofy for Frank. I mean, goopy. It wasn't goofy. It was actually pretty terrifying. I like that, like, when I mean, we talked about being her, her being sexual and uh feral and everything like and extremely horny but also they don't like go out of their way to be like this is the sexy version of a bloody skinless body (laughs) not like frank no you know this is they don't they don't just repair her breasts quickly to to so that you can uh you know objectify it or whatever yeah. yeah yeah No, this the the this sexuality in this movie is just as like intimately you know like romantic sexuality as it is with the uh, the previous movie, um, or I should say passionate, um, yeah. you know romanticized maybe, but um, th- that that passion is still there, and it is less about obje- Julia being um, objectified, more about her being powerful, and she has the same kind of power mm-hmm. when she's, you know, she she. Uh, she is not easily objectified because there's not much, I mean, like she's a blood and skin person. Like she's, mm-hmm. um, if there's a, any sexiness to her, it is coming from body language, demeanor and voice. Yeah. And well, does like, not her... mean that Chenard cannot be extremely hot for her. Like, oh, yeah. is clearly very... immediately like, Ooh, what a sexy goo bag. Chenard <laughs> is into this goopy mummy. I mean, I think she immediately has that effect. I think she has basically has like the mojo that that Frank did. Um, now, you know, and she also has that that intent. It's very like vampiric. Um, what what I appreciate is change uh, in wetness. It's it's all really awful, but we get a series of scenes of the doctor bringing home uh, men for Julia to literally just drink like juice boxes. She just goes through these things. <laughs> Uh, goes through guys like a 12 pack um, and starts, you know, 
getting getting some skin to put herself back together. Meanwhile, Kyle has escaped the doctor's house and uh, goes to tell Christy what's happened. Um, and they they eventually break into the doctor's house with hopes of getting the puzzle box. Um, and of course, they they split the party. And Kyle is not long for this world because <laughs> Kyle meets Julia. And Julia immediately just penetrates him, just like digs her hand into the back of his skull and like that seems to uh, be how she's like consuming everybody. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, she really likes going for the back of people. Yeah, she goes back for the back of the head, which is interesting, is sort of like that that animal like, you know, scruffing the neck kind of thing. Where she goes for the back of the head and then she kind of digs her hands in. And then um She really likes taking people from behind. Yeah, well, good for yeah, good for sorry. I'm sorry for going for that low hanging fruit. No. no, I think, I mean, I think it's literal. I remember because we talked about how in the first movie it was uh, in the script, they were supposed to be having anal sex. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I'll give Kyle this. At least he isn't full on seduced by, like, by her, right. but he also sure does walk into a real obvious ass murder trap. Kyle's too dumb to be seduced. Oh my god! Mm. Well, so because I think um, Kyle Kyle goes back, like he sees this shit go down, and he's like, "Well, fuck!" And he goes back to the hospital, and he's like, "Kirsty, you'll never believe it, but <laughs> what the you doctor going to happen? It's happened." Yeah, that exact thing, you know. And she's like, "Well, I, I told, I fucking told you so. Let's go." And he's like, "Are you sure?" And she's like yes and then he does like some stupid gross like oh first he's like i'll get you clothes i'm a doctor okay i mean he's at least he gets this but i mean he means that like he has the authority to go and get what he needs to from this this he's still I read it like creepy. a big yeah. old doofus dummy no I'm, that part wasn't creepy as like that was just him being like oh i can do this one thing like he right, seems very right. <laughs> very he's just, uh, like so proud like I'm a big boy doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can get clothes. They let me get clothes now. <laughs> yeah. And then he like does a weird face caress on her. And I'm like, dude, just, and I, and Kirstie's not having it either, but we have Kyle not. Does not make it to the halfway point of this movie, nor does mm-hmm. he deserve to. I think by now, Tiffany has been introduced. Yes. Yeah. Tiffany has been introduced as the girl that solves puzzles. She doesn't talk, she, but she does like puzzles. On the floor. Yeah. All day. Um, All day, day on the floor. Yeah, and, and she she will make an entrance here in a second because Julia uh, is is finishing up her meal of Kyle when uh, uh, when Kirsty walks in and tries to confront her. And Julia gives the um, that line that take your best shot, Snow White line, and just backhands Christy's soul right out of her body. <laughs> like she hits her so hard. <laughs> Christy just is knocked unconscious for an amount of time that is uncertain. Like she goes yeah. to hell while asleep. Yeah, no, like they they all are, and they just leave her there. Like, and that's how fucking confident Julia is. Is she's like, no, I just knocked her soul right out of her body. She won't be re- realigned for at least an hour or so. So we have plenty she of time. That was so hard. She does not wake up when they go to the hell dimension. <laughs> Yeah, like she wakes up and they're already like the hell dimension is open. So like Dr. Shenard has taken um this whole time also, Dr. Shenard is sort of not acting. Like he's just sitting there like, uh oh, oh, okay, blood lady, whatever you want. Um 
And Bernard's looking to fuck around and find out. Yeah, he mm-hmm. really is. I mean, he's been like, I'm obsessed with this this weird. And there were like three more puzzle boxes that he's found. Yeah, how like, many puzzle boxes are there? Well, how many Millennium Spirits are there? Seven. Yeah, what does that yeah. mean? Can you help me out? The Millennium Spirits are the pharaohs that, yeah, that they're, possess people in Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah, they're magic. <laughs> they're basically Cenobites. They're ancient Egyptian okay. artifacts that beget magic powers to their owners. And about half of them are also possessed by magical ghosts who will possess your body and make you really good at card games. And then if if somebody loses against you, you send their ass to the shadow realm, which is basically they get their feet cut off and die or they go crazy and think that leaves are money or something. It's it's uh, a lot darker than you would think. I like it when flamboyant Mark Zuckerberg challenges you to a card game and then when you lose, he steals your grandpa's soul. <laughs> oh, is that wait? Is that Pegasus? Pegasus yeah. 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 I see the the main reason that I give a shit about Yu-Gi-Oh is because Rio Bakura is based on Rio Asuka and then I just like imagine it's Rio Asuka who's from Devilman. Don't worry about it. Uh so they so they bring <laughs> I, I assumed you'd be a, a, a Saito Kaiba kind of I fucking love Kaiba and I love Joey Wheeler. I mean, come on. They're dumb. Uh, he's so dumb. Them. This is uh for your record the dub gave that character a super over-the-top Brooklyn accent, and it was real funny. Yeah. Like, like dude Harley Quinn levels of Brooklyn accent. Yes, yeah, so, so uh, the doctor shows up to discover that Julia has uh, eaten one person and slapped another to death. Um, and uh, he's like, great, I brought a surprise too. It's my obsessive puzzle solver girl. She's here to solve our... Um, puzzle so that we can get into the shadow realm (laughs) (laughs) tiffany solves the puzzle box uh and brings forth the hell dimension uh, of the cinnabites including the cinnabites deck is fucking dope he's got all the best cards (laughs) he's got all the pieces of exodia (laughs) sorry this is so much so much much i did not expect hellraiser too i think we can okay Episode title, Hellraiser 2, Shadow Realm Bound. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that. I did not see all the Yu-Gi-Oh! talk coming. You are right. This this episode has taken an unexpected turn. Right up there um, with, uh, oh shit, a diamond for possible uh, title. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Romeo's skinny cousin, about, Leviathan. We talked about how hard the music for Candyman went. Like, Every 10 minutes, because that movie was amazing. We finally get some good, booming, crazy, over-the-top horror movie music when the Cenobites show up. Oh, yeah. And oh, it well, is always, they always rough. got the best. I love how much um, fucking business the Xenobites are, are in this scene, because they walk out, and female Xenobite is like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to kill this little girl. And Pinhead's like, uh, no, no, no. We don't care about hands. We're here for the motherfuckers who wanted to see us yeah we're here and to kill I, some I people that we care about tiffany's there and she solves the puzzle and then like the fucking hell the shadow realm doors open up and the cinebikes come out and she's just like okay you know and she's solving the puzzle and like everything in this fucking office is like getting blown around like there's suddenly you know an earthquake and wind and fire and water and and heart and we all like 
yeah, everyone's like standing back and she's just like cool i guess uh this just makes as much sense as anything else that's happened in her we, life so far we, right we, the audience at this point are getting like a clown juggling eyeballs and a nightmare baby with eyes fucking sewn shut like yeah, she walks bad. into the insane clown posse's uh, latest music video. Like, we're getting all this fucking nightmare, like, bad acid trip, and we're watching the Willy Wonka boat scene, and she just fucking keeps solving them puzzles. Yeah. Uh, ain't, ain't none of this bothering her. I, and well, that's I, because I she's not hyper-focused. I mean, yeah. this is them trying to show, you know, a girl with, like, a severe mental illness or trauma that she's only able to do one thing and obsessive compulsive and focus on this and like you know it's sort of a kind of stereotypical depiction right yeah, yeah. but still like i would have rather been seeing her doing the puzzle i'm like man this is a very nightmare baby i don't like this this baby's scaring the <laughs> shit out of me can we get the puzzle vision well she's can we go back she, to that she opens the doors and the xenobites come out and then like because and before the xenobites come out fucking julia and dr chenard like run in because of reasons and um you know they want to solve the labyrinth of the mind and they find a real ass labyrinth in a mind maybe Ooh, let's talk about the how the brain is shaped like a universe but uh or vice versa but um and like tiffany's just chilling and then finally kirsty wakes up and she's like i know that music um i'm gonna leave this room full of dead women <laughs> um <laughs> oh, that's my cue yeah, yeah Kirsty at this point knows enough to be like, well, a lot of dead bodies around. Time to not be here then. Yeah, so she goes downstairs and she's like, oh, Tiffany. And then they go into the, uh, um, they just go into there and. Tiffany uh, goes into the horror carnival all alone. Uh, yeah, to Tiffany's see the our... very, the very bad clown uh, that is very bad at juggling. Yeah, he is juggling his two eyes. I know that's hard, but I'm not giving him a pass. He's an eyeless clown in hell. I know he has no eyes. <laughs> they're juggling. He's juggling the eyes. They might be disorienting, but he's still, he's supernatural. Come on. The end. Yeah, what did you guys think about that? Like, and now we're in a clown hell. Like, it's a little bit played out. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I thought that the clown thing was the, like, I was just Clive Barker going, Wee! <laughs> i mean and i think that scene is more there for us to see the you know her trauma playing out in the background of, of this fucked up carnival as as it's going on so that we you know we know that shenard killed her mom and um yeah. you know that's that's how she got to the hospital is her mom came there looking for help and uh, uh Chenard sucks um, the image that to me um stuck with me among the flashes when we're having the sequence is it looks like cuckold threesome hell <laughs> where there's a guy and the girl sewn facing each other. And then there's a guy sewn with his back to back to the girl. And it just reminded me of the first movie with uh, Frank and Julia and the dad and their dynamic. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, is this like what they would have had to go through at some point? Is this like supposed to evoke that? whole imagery from the first movie um i'm not sure because i don't know who the other woman was yeah like it couldn't have been julia but it it just stuck with me for the thematic parallel yeah, yeah. kirstie does pick up an item for her inventory here which is a picture of pre-pins pinhead yeah um, she has like the whole file on this the cinnabites um who they were yeah i gotta say i don't 
look, if I just had that photo, I don't think I would have recognized that that was Pinhead. No, I wouldn't. It's effective makeup. Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, there's some sort of help, like she's met the the Cenobites, so now she has some intuition. I don't know. A lot of people make jumps in this film, and I'm I'm too busy looking at the labyrinth and the Leviathan to really give a shit. (laughs) But yeah, like he's he's hardly recognizable. Um, Yeah. Uh, Speaking of the Leviathan, this is where uh, she, where Julia takes Gennard to go meet her god, Leviathan, Lord of the Labyrinth. We get this, um, I don't know how they did this special effect of them superimposed on top of this giant labyrinth map, um, but it is super cool um, that, you know, they sort of enter what looks like a painting here and then we see the, the big rotating shape above them. A lot um, of the special effects regarding Hell and Leviathan, I think, worked really well. They were. Yeah. But, I'm, but, I, but I'm interested in, like... The laser balls really had a silly. Well, they really hadn't... You know, we, we only hear about Hell in the first movie, and we don't really hear about other gods. So it's sort of like a expansion on the mythology of the story, and I'm curious about what is the particular mythology inspiration that for this, you know? I mean, the Leviathan, uh, I mean, the, the Leviathan, from what I remember about the story of the Leviathan, I mean, the Book of Job, they talk about the behemoth and Leviathan, and they're basically talking about a crocodile and an elephant or a hippopotamus or something like that. Or you know. Kyogre and Grudon for all you Pokemon fans. Yeah. <laughs> yep. The Leviathan um, became like a demon of hell that was a serpent that was like a demon of envy at some points. I mean, it's, it's sort of changed because it, it was originally like a serpent or a dragon. And then it became more like a whale um, in, in the, the interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in this case, the, the, um, the, the sort of demon God of desire. Uh, yeah. I feel like Julia, Julia seems to imply it's her God because of her insatiable desire and, um, you know, her, her constant need for more. I guess yeah. a, a diamond is a vaguely snake-like shape. Well, I think we're now I getting into the, the non-Euclidean geometry situation. Ooh, I love non-Euclidean horror. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's... like there I, quantum horror? Have we found the genre of quantum horror? Hellspacer. Um... <laughs> isn't that isn't that just space madness yeah uh, i think that's event horizon isn't it yeah that sounds like quantum horror event horizon also the warp um is from fort warhammer 40 that, that episode nerds. of voyager where janeway and paris turn into lizard people and have lizard kids on a planet and then nobody talks about like, it again yeah, also moon I, as sam rockwell mm-hmm. oh yeah doesn't oh, have yeah, anything moon. to do with quantum but it's got sam rockwell and that's pretty sweet and our space odyssey <laughs> with the I'm doing the thing that the lab that the that the monolith does. See, basic shapes are terrifying, right? And that's they're the most eldritch of horror. The monolith, that shit was terrifying. I've seen I was 2001. Little... Sorry, I've seen 2001. I know. yeah. I mean, what is the scariest three-dimensional shape? A perfect sphere for sure. Floating. Yeah, I've seen the prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I think that might be true. I mean, yeah. No, oh, for me, it's like, pyramid. It's, nothing... it's like yeah. equilateral triangle pyramid for me. I mean, cylinders are pretty spooky. I gotta say. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why. No, I think you're onto something because, like, if you see I... a big 
you know, big rectangles of building, a big pyramid, like, okay, you know. Yeah, so uh, she says, uh, she she delivers, Julia delivers the I have such sights to show you line to our boy Chenard and then uh, shoves him in a box where he gets cut into into slivers and shutting a, shut in the box and taken away. Um, uh, the, the effects when we see like the wires wrap around his face and just dig into him. Yeah, it was briefly like, very gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, I love uh, at this point the Cenobites relationship with Kirsty, where it's just like fucking just walk around the place. We'll see you later. Yeah, they <laughs> they show up and then Kirsty's like, uh, not today, and they're like, actually, yeah, today. And yeah, they're then like, they start- hey, Kirsty, good to see you again. And she's like, no, I'm not trying to like have crazy sex and like fuck whatever it is you guys are into they're like sure <laughs> they're, they're <laughs> come back a second time they're definitely too much in their version of a romantic comedy and Kiersey's just being hard to get it. it's like ah, oh, funny how we keep running into each other right <laughs> for someone who doesn't want to hang out with crazy sex demons you sure do seem to me run into sex demons a whole bunch the whole reason she's here is to find her dad which is like <laughs> I mean, it's a real hunch, Christy, or Kirsty. Yeah. Um, I mean, the it's very much like, are you sure you don't want snakes shoved in your orifices? And Christy's like, no, that's not why I'm here. I'm here for my dad. And they're like, ah, sure. Which, again, what was the plan? <laughs> like, presumably, even if she got her dad out, it's like, he isn't he going to be a skinless dude? Like, is she going to start feeding him people? What's your That's plan here, Kirsty? Well, her plan, think, it turns out, is to two? just yell at the traumatized girl. Um, a lot. <laughs> it's like, leave this poor girl alone. She doesn't know what the fuck's going on anymore than you do. Like, uh, yeah, and eventually she is trying to get Tiffany to get them out. And then is like, hold on. That's my dad's house. Uh, we should stop by there. That's definitely what his hell would look like, his house. Um, <laughs> Which is still there for some reason. Yeah, I mean it's in hell. I mean, I know, but like the the, uh, the real house was still there, oh, yeah. even though it exploded. It yeah, turned into she, a chair on fire. It it turns out that it is uh, not her dad, but Frank who's in there. This is Frank's eternal prison, and he goes back to his old his old favorite thing to do, which is the sexual violence against his niece. Um, you know, he's got a cool. Like he's got a cool setup with the like video game puzzle with the sexy writhing corpses underneath the shrouds and stuff. It actually it does harken back to the imagery of Julia's or not Julia, um, Kirsty's dream about her dad dying, where right. there was this shroud and the and the the blood and everything like that. Um, so that was pretty cool. Also, at this point, I gotta say, just for for pacing's sake, the Cenobites have turned the puzzle box into like a mini Leviathan. Um, yeah. They like stretch it out into the terrifying pointy diamond. Yeah, that was the way of kind of taking away the method of victory from the first movie because she was able to unsummon them with the puzzle. So that was there being like, no, that trick isn't going to work this time. Got to do something else. But I'm going to go on record and saying Frank's hell, not bad enough. He's a shitty dude. I want him to see be in a worse hell. I mean, the whole thing is that he can't like interact with the writhing, sexy shroud girls. Like you, when they when you take the shroud off, they disappear. So, and apparently they're there to like tease him. So he just that's yeah. a, a, eternal blue balls does not seem to fit the crime. This 
This might be one of my favorite scenes in this movie, though, because Julia comes wandering into this place and Frank's like, oh, Julia, you're back for me. Let's hook up. Like, you're you're here for me because you can't possibly resist me, right? And she's like, sure. And then rips his fucking heart out. Hell yeah. <laughs> that is satisfying. I also really enjoyed uh, Kirstie just setting one sheet on fire and that instantly setting everything on fire. Yeah, that was surprisingly effective there. Yeah. A very flammable hell. A very flammable yeah. stone hell. I like how they communicate like that her, her dad couldn't possibly be there. Yeah. I mean, we know it's because Andy Robinson was like, I just got to go make some Star Trek. Bye. Mm -hmm. But um, I think they do kind of say like he is in a hell of a different kind. Yeah. In yeah, a way that doesn't hell. that doesn't quite feel like like an excuse. He's in normal yeah. hell, not sex demon hell. Yeah, but, no, yes. This is this is the labyrinth of the mind. Like I mean, this we, is a, a nightmare. Dad, he's in a very boring plaid hell. Like, <laughs> right? His, his hell is khaki. Like, no, I'll yeah. never get past you saying. I think it was Jeremy. You saying like he, the, his problem is he doesn't know he's in this movie. <laughs> yeah. His yeah. hell should be like a television where he can never get the settings quite right. Mm -hmm. Very dad hell. Just him yeah. and a VCR. Yeah, his, well, his what hell does is input just every mean? time he goes outside, like a somebody, the neighbor's dog has pooped in his yard. Like, oh, you kids and your dogs. If yeah. he can go to the medium place, <laughs> I think that's where he should right. be. <laughs> All right. And then, so um, Julia, yeah, the Julia takes out its heart. The fire, the fire comes back, goes away, comes back. There's fire is, is very inconsistent. But then um, it's just so fucking awesome when she rips out his heart. Yeah, yeah, and then I it's it's so behind. Like, she had to like get through the rib cage to pull it out from behind. She doesn't go the easy way. Yeah, it's not a common situation. Yeah, Frank was Frank is a low class demon. She has outclassed him at this point. Like she's Fuck evolved yeah. beyond whatever he was. She also seems to have more of like a personal connection with Leviathan too. Like I think Frank didn't really under like Frank got to Cinnabites and then. And I think that's another thing about the blue ball hell is that like Frank has already been like taken apart piece by piece and like racked up on a on a post and shit. So like I, I think at this point they're just like I don't know what else we could do to you other than just m make you real frustrated. I'm going to um, interpret as they looked and they're like, you know what, you're too shitty to turn into a Cenobite, so yeah. we're just gonna send you like to the blue ball room. Yeah, I mean, no, Frank no, no sexy demon, no demon sex death for you. You don't get to join in on all the crazy, horny, violent shit the Cenobites are going to get to do. You got to go to the blue ball room. Actually, you know what? I take it back. This is getting sent to the blue ball room is probably more torture for Frank than getting turned into a Cenobite. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, he, he can't yeah. interact with anything. So you he's know, just I'm like, coming around. I'm coming around to the blue ball room. Yeah, this is effective hell. Mm -hmm. Yep. I my mind has been changed. Yeah, so this, this is also where we get the, the reappearance of the doc. The doc uh, comes back from the abyss. And wanders out of this thing, uh, oh, an entirely new, horrible creature, and uh, delivers his. To think I hesitated uh, before getting absolutely Stop. brain fucked by the Leviathan. Yeah, Leviathan's giant Dremel dick comes out of space and penetrates his skull and gets yeah. into his brain. And it stays there. It, he doesn't just go. Okay, I'm done, like you did. This With is a decisive tentacle dick. Dremel. I really thought the tentacle dick drill in the head was just going to look goofy as his main method of propulsion. 
but it actually did a good job making him look like a more otherworldly and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was little, like his tentacles with like fucking blades and shit coming out of them are very disturbing. This is the most unsettling claymation I've ever seen. Um, yeah, well, including the revival in the first one that was all claymation. The visuals are very disturbing, but I feel like you're getting a real like Palpatine in the prequels effect where Kenneth Granham is just having so much fun with it. Like yeah. I couldn't help but have fun with him. Yeah, because like, like the blades bloom out of one of the like worms or the one of the tentacles, like a little blade flower, and then like all sorts of different shit happens. And then like at one point he's trying to uh coerce what like Tiffany to come and he like one of them blooms into an actual real flower and then one becomes a finger which like beckons. Amazing. It's amazing. amazing. Yeah. When again I'd mentioned how a lot of this movie, like especially the first like hour was real slow for me. Like I was just like lying like just watching this movie. And then when he bursts through the doors and goes like, the doctor is in! Like, I bolted upright in, like, my chair. I was just like, oh, okay. This movie decided to show the fuck up now. Yeah, well, the second to hell, I was, like, 100% on board. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, let's get psychedelic. All right. Oh, they're not pulling any punches. We got a carnival. Oh, shit. It better get better. Oh, it did. Thank you. Um, Also, there's a bit where Julia, I think it's it's Frank's hell gets like turns into a quantum singularity. There's your quantum hell. Um, there's yeah, tur- quantum hell. Yeah, it becomes a singularity and then like sucks Julia right out of her skin, which mm. is important for later. But yeah, out of her yes. skin suit leaves her deflated skin suit behind. Check it is skin gross. Suit. <sighs> yeah, that's that's the. That's the one bit that I I was not as sold on. Like I, I like villain Julia, and she gets sort of a anticlimactic send off here. Yeah, yeah like, that's the thing. If this movie was supposed to be the beginning of her as the franchise's main villain, mm-hmm. it doesn't treat her as the actual main villain of the movie. That is true. Yeah, she should have she should have had a better run. Um, she's yeah, really but everybody cool. everybody is going to get a shitty ending here uh, very quickly because. Kirstie and Tiffany uh, run away from the dock and find the room full of Cenobites uh, hanging around and they're ready to start carving people up until uh, Kirstie reveals that they were all humans once uh, yeah, and shows so Tim has... had a picture of himself and he just turns back into a dude. Yeah, That's... and then he yeah. has such a little supple hand. Soft. I'm, I'm not a fan <laughs> of this resolution. Um, I'm not either, especially okay, so what all right okay okay hold on i well we we did pass something that's very important which was tiffany's first line which is when the doctor showed up and she was like shit that yeah. was really good that was good that was a good payoff like, yeah for a first line after like the whole it movie. really was yeah. yeah um so yeah so she comes into the room and she's like starts appealing to the cinnabites humanity which i'm like come on like y- but then they have like okay, so then the doc shows up, and there's a scene of fight. And a scene like, of fight. I like. Can we trademark that? TM copyright registered trademark. Well, here's the thing: like, even if QC gets through to their humanity, the people they were are were before were people that got turned into Cenobites. Like they'd all like be like as like they're all Frank or Shannon yeah. shit bags. 
Right. Well, the doctor seems defeats them and then humanizes, like basically makes them human, so they lose all their cool Cenobite shit. They still have the cool leather on, but Pinhead loses his pins. Um, shades, we find it's He's a just very head. different experience to just have a middle aged British man, yeah, in that get up. It's so a we, wildly different vibe. I have a set of yeah. to show you. Come along, well. What do you think you're doing here? You can't come into this country in this fashion. Come along, Evelyn. We're going to be late for the orgy. Um, yeah, I mean, you know he was like a spiritualist freak. But anyway, if he was bald, so is Crowley. But he he becomes a dude. Okay. Shades becomes a, a hefty guy. All right. Girl Cenobite becomes a girl. That that's that tracks. She's just her without a vagina neck. Oh, the so chattering stabbed right in the vagina neck yeah which is that like just... i mean if i don't know i think if she chose the way that she wanted to go that would be it it would be it was mm. the the it, it's absolutely the i think the decision every filmmaker would have made but it was still a real like oh god damn ugh. i mean Moment. why why have it there if you're not gonna like do something with it you know absolutely it's it's the whole thing about like you can make extra ass designs but I love like I love reverse engineering crazy extra ass designs. Like, why does pin I mean it was kind of cool that Pinhead's pins were like part of the weird phrenology shit. I thought that was interesting. I wish it wasn't so like obvious. But the thing that we're this the, there's a big there's the behemoth in the room right now is the fact that we have four Cenobites. Pinhead is a dude, girl is a woman, shades is a dude. Teeth chattering Cenobite is a little kid. Yeah. What the fuck, Hellraiser? That's upsetting. Also, given that this movie establishes that they would not do this to just a random kid who stumbled upon a puzzle box and was fucking around with it, this is some like, what did this kid do? Right. right? Like, who, who was this kid? He was the Nelson Munsk of the school, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he also just, like, he wasn't just, a, like, a bully. He was one of those kids that, like, like the uh, the kids that become Ed Gein or whatever. Right, right. Um, like, where's, I, do I want to know this kid's origin story? No. I, I certainly don't. Cause I, cause when kids are nuts, it's, I mean, that's the thing too, is you, you know, at first I'm like, well, fuck hell is the right. And then I think about it and I'm like, oh no. Yeah. That's like the most, that is, that is some dark shit that we really like are just kind of looking at over here. They're like, by the way, this shit's really fucked up. Um, you know what kids like kids do and they just don't, they don't know the ramifications of it. A lot of kids torture animals and it's I mean not a lot of kids in the world, but you know what I mean. There's mm-hmm. there have been a lot of a lot of yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. fucked up. So that's fucked up. Um yeah, Tiffany uh sees the Leviathan and the Leviathan shows her uh, memories of the duck killing her mom. Uh she suddenly realizes she needs to solve the puzzle. Uh but the duck shows up to stop her from doing that. Um but he is uh, quickly distracted by Julia who shows up to make out with him at the last second, um, which buys Tiffany enough time to solve the puzzle. Uh, and as the dock is being destroyed, Tiffany uh, almost falls, but Julia saves her. Uh, but it's not Julia because as she's trying to save her, the skin starts falling apart and we realize it's Kristen or it's Kirsten in Julia's skin suit. 
Um, and they escape back to the real world as they're assaulted by laser balls. Um, in because uh, clearly, I guess the doc was like a load bearing villain kind of situation. Um, <laughs> the, whole, the whole house starts collapsing around them. Oh my god! Uh, well, well the, I feel also, like Leviathan... that is a thing, though. That is a thing. That is a thing that happens in stories. There are load-bearing villains, and when you remove them, the whole thing falls apart physically. The space. Yes, thank you. Leviathan had Quantum. a real. Yeah. I'm gonna take my ball and go home. Feel. Oh. It's like, ah, <laughs> oh, you tricked me. Like, ah, oh, Shannon, I rip your head off. Fuck you. But can um, we talk a little bit about the symbolism of um, how we have uh, Christie is sort of set up as being like the dot the um like the snow white to julia as the evil queen and in the end she ends up steal and there's a whole like sort of elizabeth bathory thing where she's like bathing in the blood of yeah. and then later in the movie julia sorry christy has the steal the skin of the evil queen in order to save rather than eat i guess in this case the younger girl so they're they're definitely playing with some coming of age archetypes fairy tale sort of archetypes for the yeah because tiffany tiffany doesn't really engage so much i mean she's she's there to save her dad she finds out her dad isn't there but she, she like this whole time she is has, doesn't want anything to do with the cinnabites and what they you know they're they're weird fucked up shit just from day one she's like absolutely not um the only thing that she'll do is solve the puzzle to get the cinnabites out of there mm-hmm. um but now she's engaging in the horror she is doing something horrifying. She, I mean, she takes that skin suit and like grafts it to herself magically somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also is, and she also, as Julia makes out with the doctor. So she really has now like taken some agency and also lost some innocence uh, of her character at that point. Um because like she doesn't you know, when she attacks Cenobites, she's never attacked you know she's never attacked them with a weapon she never really attacked any of her of her uh um enemy with a weapon she's always just been like resisting or you know angrily solving the puzzle with them hmm. um so it, yeah this is this is a pretty significant moment i think um and it also is important to note that at this point, while as Tiffany was um, solving the puzzle, uh, it, it, it was becoming a box again. And then as it became a box again, so did the Leviathan. The Leviathan turns from right. its oblong form to the puzzle box. So it's sort of like she's folding this universe back into itself. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. I, <laughs> I wish more of the movie had that kind of cool stuff in it so it felt a bit more rewarding but it still was pretty cool to see all that come together um and it was cool to see kirsty be bad yeah it was a very in like a way of defeating the villain that definitely showed off her ingenuity and her determination and her agency it was even more so than solving the puzzle box to summon back the scene of in the first one it felt more like a decisive victory that she had earned through her own cunning and i i did i don't know it felt like a i think like to me it felt like a very rewarding uh ending for her or a way for her to win yeah 
the the only thing that i wonder though is that the way they escape they escape from the hospital but they didn't go in at the hospital they went in at the doctor's house so you know this might be like one of those picard is still in the nexus kind of situations where you know they think that they're they think that they're out but they're still just in a more complicated not real world or something but um if if we stayed with their point of view maybe that would have been more solid but in this case um they're i guess they're going to uh the doctor's house where somebody has arranged everything to be moved out and uh george lucas comes in with drew's moving company i think it's the same movers as from the first movie. oh wow ah. they sure show some bad personal decisions yeah or maybe they're just the go-to movers that don't like ask any questions don't ask any questions yeah. yeah they have they have bo- there's everything's in boxes except for the mattress because somebody's like i don't know um and then uh the george lucas d- d- discovers his friend who has been half eaten by the mattress the mover looks like george lucas he's wearing plaid and everything you're right and he and his friend gets half eaten by the mattress so his like ass and feet are still sticking out of the mattress and then the mattress opens up to reveal the uh slightly racist uh college art project um <laughs> that is very apt the the rectangle of faces yeah, yeah the rectangle the face tangle if you will it's, it's a real what it's the like fuck tangle note to end on even for a horror movie where you know it's still got to end on some kind of like no all is not well there's still more evil in the world but they get to leave wearing some pretty boss outfits yeah like it's still a really creepy ass thing full of really spooky weird imagery and and racism also unfortunately yeah they, they almost dodged that racist bullet but from the first movie but then they had to end it with the the face at least the i mean the face was a stretched out face on a pillar but it still was the character from the previous movie that was some sort of racist stereotype but um yeah the i mean we don't know what happened with all the corpses because this house was also had like the corpse attic um like you do but you know that's not important Hmm. um and i think the the this pillar thing features in the next film i mean the first one as well yeah that's true um, but in the next one, it is presented as like an actual art piece in an art gallery where they're like, look at this cool art, Velvet Buzzsaw. <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's, that's the end. To, you know, Mattress eats a guy and coughs up a, <laughs> a weird shape, uh, which is weird shapes are what we're all about in this movie. Um, and that's that's the end. Well, it ends with him still asking his pleasure, trying to give him a puzzle box. It's like, dude, you are a face on a shape. And you're still <laughs> hustling. He's yeah. still trying. I mean, got it, got it. He's got resolute. Fucking hustle culture. That's the real hell. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. So I, I guess that uh, that leads to our questions here. Uh, I guess uh, first of all, uh, do we feel like this movie has anything to say about LGBTQIA people and themes? Mm-hmm. In the sense that it shows how much hot. Der Julia is wearing a white linen suit versus like as a sex mummy versus wearing the evening gown. I think that's mildly instructive, less about the film itself, but more instructive about you, the viewer as an individual. (laughs) Yes. 
Um, yeah. They really do. And they dress her up with less harsh makeup in this movie in general as well, actually. Yeah. They, they absolutely have a different makeup artist working on her face. And, but it is her in the white linen suit with the eyes without a face wrap. That is like the surrealist moment. And then she drinks up the cigarette and you're like, oh, yeah. And it's also hot. Yeah. But and then you have to ask yourself, why does what's his face have of a lady's evening gown at home in the first place? I mean, I'm sure taking it from another country that he, you know, stole. Yeah. Pillaged all these other things from. Pillaged it. Yeah. I mean, I. That's about it, though. Yeah, it it doesn't feel as uh, sort of openly queer as the first one does. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do like this sort of like. Julia, I, I do like that Julia is not a tortured villain in this movie, that she is like a person who has she has accepted that like this pain and pleasure is is her thing. She wants more, she can't get enough of it. She is there to, you know, serve this, you know, Leviathan. She is not like she is uh she has accepted her role as a villain. She is she into is it. Gleeful about being a villain. Like, yeah, she is. Yeah, she is thriving. She is decisive, um, and uh, she's in control. I mean, I guess on that note, do we feel like uh, this movie is feminist in, in a that girl boss kind of way? Is it, is Julia a girl boss? Yes, I would say Julia is a girl More boss. Like a ghoul boss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I don't know. It's certainly a movie where there's lots of women characters with agency. Uh, I mean, Julia is such a very active villainous presence. Uh, Kirstie is given lots of opportunity, uh, smart and clever and get out of situations on her own. Uh, even Tiffany with her like ability to solve, like save the day um, skills and interest in puzzles. So I don't know if the themes are feminist, but I do feel like the movie isn't short on engaging and interesting women characters. Yeah, I don't think the movie is about feminism at all, but I think it, yeah. it is uh, the the decisions made um, certainly show some progress, at least for the time, um, in in having these uh, women with agency. Um, you know, and it's not perfect, certainly, but. Um, it is it is certainly a step in the right direction and an interesting like point in the, in the time it was released and also in in the grand scheme of horror um, and also to have a movie that talks about sex so much and not have like ha- just across the board everybody's tits showing you know it's interesting yeah yeah because this this movie I mean Julia's Julia I think. I can't remember if we actually see her naked skin, like with we, skin we, on. No, only naked without skin. Yeah, which is not like not it's, it's sexy. Naked. <laughs> yeah, which is well, it's like it's like the extra level of naked, which I think is what it's supposed to really indicate. It's like you know, you take mm-hmm. it to the next step. So, um, I am it when you're talking about sex and vulnerability. You know, um, you have nudity and you have you know the the um the reduction of layers that that separate people and all that kind of stuff and then now we have we don't have even have the skin on you know we have another um barrier that has been dropped that is very very like kind of scary and intimidating visually because you know she's muscle woman without skin but it is very sexy when like 
you know, at least for me, I thought it was very sexy when he was, she was sort of like coming on to him and he was like kind of exploring with his hands on her like bare muscles. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, there's certain areas of the body that are already just like there, (laughs) you know, they're not, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, that, that, um solid epidermal layer solid epidermal layer that um reduces the sensitivity of touch as it does in like you know suit area but um yeah i i I think that um that's you know is that feminist though i don't know i just think it's interesting yeah i I think the the part to me that i don't know how much just feels uh feels feminist or or is feminist or, or what is the the scene with frank where Frank makes this assumption that like he has power over Julia. Right. That like Julia is a, a monster of his creation. And Julia makes it very clear that she is a monster of her own creation, that she has, you know, surpassed his power. Um, <laughs> and literally rip his fucking heart out and he can't do anything about it. Um, yeah. I... You know, I, 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 you know, while Julia is, is no doubt a villain in this story, I, I, I think there's some value in, you know, that sort of, I guess, updating of the message of, you know, the first one, which is, you know, Frank sort of corrupts her and turns her into this villain. Um, I think it makes very clear that Julia, no, turns herself into this villain. This Frank was just an opportunity. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she's made this this choice for herself. Julia is nobody's minion. Yeah. Except for Leviathan. That's not a man. That's just floating nightmare geometry. Well, and that's another thing too, is that if you think about it, you know, we have all of this thematic, um, this stuff about Chenard and like the labyrinth of the mind and all this kind of stuff. And then we have an actual labyrinth. And then Julia points to the the Leviathan and said, this is my God. You know, is this Julia's hell? Is this her labyrinth? Um, You know, or is this, is this something that she has contributed to with her desires you know, because I feel like that the Cenobites, this is all something that everybody has like a piece of, right? That they, yeah. they contribute to with their their particular desires and, I mean, and the first one um, they say they're explorers, right? And like yeah. they're they're not they're not in hell. They are hell to some extent, you know. Yeah, and it's not exactly like hell is in, you know, the the punishment of the the damned. It is, you know, just a place of nightmares where we go beyond the horizontal and the vertical where they, you know, and, and in this case, the the way that they're going beyond is with sensation, um, et cetera. The outer limit. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, guess, uh, I guess the next question would be, do we feel like this movie has anything meaningful to say about either class or race in this case? No. Is there anyone <laughs> not, not white in this movie? No. Not really, unless you count the... Uh, um, no. <laughs> The, the Cenobites, but they, we, but we, they all turn into white people. I guess geometry yes. doesn't have a race. Cenobite. Well, yeah, like the only thing is the face on, like the the bad stereotype face. Oh the yeah. Oh god. Geometry is Arabic, right? God, that's yeah. our one person of color. Oof. Yeah. But, you know, and like my, Oof, you know, I, I make a joke about like the way they have the different classes of insane asylum victims locked up, but there is no like material explanation of what classifies one person as being a good crazy person who gets treatment versus a bad crazy person who gets tortured that's just the supposition so yeah Yeah. there isn't really any class analysis other than me making assumptions 
Yeah, and I, I think you know the, the other question is how does this movie deal with mental illness? And I, I think it kind of sidesteps dealing it with any sort of interesting way. They just use crazy people as a resource in this movie. They're just like, oh, this is a this is my hallway full of uh, unhelpable, insane people that we can just sacrifice mm-hmm. to to make my mummy whole. <laughs> Oh, he has mummy issues. That's his deal. Yeah. Lots of mummy, mummy. <laughs> so I, I um, guess uh, the question He wants a would, sugar mummy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, would we recommend this movie? Do we think this is worth people seeing? I would recommend the last half hour of this movie. Yeah, I this would is... maybe jump around, see how you like it. See, like start it, see how you're doing. Maybe fast forward through some bits you're having trouble with or like starting to get a little tired of. And really, once the portal to hell opens up, like, then you're really in for a treat. Yeah, I think that um, this is one of those that's like, it's a really good, like, if you just want to watch something weird, but you don't want to watch something too weird that you don't get it, you know, or that it's like really opaque um, and and something that doesn't have that pretension. Like, watch this movie. This movie's got great, it's like great weird imagery. It's like Dune where you, you don't have high standards but or high expectations but you're like let's let's party let's go yeah i mean for me from the from the moment claire higgins burst out of that mattress it's worth watching like every yeah. everything with her in like in the scenes is great the stuff you know once once the doctor uh gets his uh transformation is all great i yeah like like been saying i really enjoy everything in the hell part of it um but particularly everything with julia like I, I that's that is where you know if if i like it's difficult to say whether i like this movie more than the first one but the stuff i like about it is definitely like julia claiming her agency as an mm-hmm. actual demon of hell yeah mm-hmm. um and not and she doesn't feel desperate either and she doesn't feel like a you know the the um the like a desperate scorned woman no um, what she's into this is her shit yeah she's uh she yeah. is diabolical this is someone who you know what it may have been a bumpy road to get to where she is but she's who she is who she is meant to be which happens to be the servant of all nightmares and monsters but i mean she is thriving yeah like this is this is what like it's good to see this for her it's a good look she's it's where she's best meant afterlife. to be yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm happy for, for like I'm happy for anyone to find their real passion in life, and Julia has so clearly done that in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> again, her passion is evil, but it's great to see again. Like she's like her skin is clear; it's been freshly killed and stolen. Her crops are growing; she is thriving in evil, <laughs> and it's nice to have a villain in between her and Chatham. It's nice to have a villain who's just like. Yeah, isn't being evil pretty great and fun? Yeah, as they say, yes, queen. Yes. <laughs> where where did you come? That's down like on this gatekeep girl boss. Hmm? <laughs> where did you come down on this one as as far as recommendation? It's hard because it's like the first Hellraiser movie is so brilliant and innovative, and there's some interesting things happening in this one, but I just don't enjoy it as much. So. I don't know. Yeah, to me, the the first one is definitely a more interesting and enjoyable movie, though once this movie does get going, it sure does have a lot of spectacular and inventives and ideas. 
yeah i mean i think it i think it works much better the, the second half works better but i think it it works kind of better as a short film mm. um for me i think uh yeah there's a whole bunch of fat that can be trimmed from this movie to make it like the same kind of quality as the first movie and in the first movie also you know there's some things that can definitely be trimmed um like the the dragon guy and the the racism and all that kind of stuff but um first one's got a lot more rough edges than this one i feel like i mean whether it be the weird adr or or, um you know the, the how clear it is that like they're shooting with a low budget inside of a house, like just the weird angles that they have to take and things that make it hard to follow what's going on sometimes. Um, yeah, this one clearly has a bigger budget though. Although I guess like they gave it a bigger budget and then took a chunk of it back at the last minute. Uh, oh, no. oh wow. That's mean. Yeah. Cause there's, I mean, they're supposed to be apparently a much larger origin to pinhead in this one that i guess ends up coming out in the third one but like yeah uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that i guess they cut at the last minute because their their budget got cut which might explain why there's so much like reusage of footage early on in the movie yeah it felt like the movie had Hmm. sort of was was, uh, kind of being pulled in various directions yeah um and i mean on that note people have enjoyed you know these two these two fine Hellraiser films, what would you recommend they uh, check out next? Labyrinth, because they are both dark <laughs> fantasies with Maeve. And puppets. Yeah. yeah. And, and uncomfortable sexuality. Did I tell people to watch um, Season of the Witch last time I was on this show? The George Romero movie? I think so. I think so, so. yeah. Okay, yeah. then I guess I can't say that again. You can say you it again. Could. The like the super high rating on the weird shitometer of this movie, um, with all the crazy like animation, like the the stop action animation, reminds me a lot of movies that are just that. Um, and mm-hmm. I would recommend if you like that, uh, Jan Svankmeyer has a yeah. Uh, there you go. Yeah, has right. a has a big, um, uh, portfolio, I guess, a big, a big uh, um, filmography that you can check out. There's his version of Alice in Wonderland, um, this version of Faust, and then there's Little Otik, which is very disturbing um, and more of a live action integrated with um, the, or not, I shouldn't say integrated, but live action. And then, you know, your character has some of the stop action things um and then there's a movie that is that is kind of like those called the secret adventures of tom thumb which is actors and puppets and everything is in stop action so the actors are moving in stop action like peter gabriel and sledgehammer but in this case Mm -hmm. it's fucking weird um and uh you know and then there's the brothers quake collection which is also a um the sort of homage is very very influenced uh by on spankmeyer which in the brothers quake collection um you know if the, any of these aren't sounding familiar if you've seen the video for prison sex by tool it's basically a like one-to-one homage to the brothers quake collection so a lot of that stop action stuff in the tool videos is is influenced by Brothers Quay, Jan, Jan Spankmeyer and, and such. Um, and then there's another film, another British horror, like psychedelic horror question mark film called Born of Fire. And 
that is a that was a dark horse of a movie because I had never heard of it before. But it is an incredible movie about a guy who is trying to like challenge a gin to a flute battle, and half of it is like weird um like stuffy british people trying to solve a mystery and then the other half is like just bananas imagery and it's like filmed in turkey and all this kind of stuff and it was dope so i actually have a a selection for people although i totally co-sign everything emily recommended for this as well um folks should definitely see ken russell's movie the devil uh, people should watch ken russell movies period but especially the devil i think that the some of the imagery and thinking about uh bodies and hell and torture is some of it's in there i i mean i actually think the devil is one of the best movies of the period which is like period being the 70s um and it is it has historically been hard to get a hold of it, but I think it's on the Criterion channel now. So I encourage folks to, especially because I think you can get the uncensored version, which is really important for all the added scenes you need of Vanessa Redgrave as a nun masturbating with the bones. Um, you should like go and watch that now while you can. Um, yes, he is also the director of Tommy. And <laughs> um, I mean, truly one of the great directors. And uh, it's the story of um, a, a town in Paris, uh, the, the Devils of Languedoc, where uh, the local priest had made peace between the Catholics and the Protestants and the people in power were like, I'm sorry, you want people to like make peace between each other? No, no, we can't have that. Let's go make some, let's go like turn your personal life into hell and make sex scandals of it. Because he's the groovy. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, can't have tolerance. Got to make people's lives terrible. And it's mm-hmm. Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave. And it's like really amazing. The art direction is all from Derek Jarman, who like goes on to be, you know, director Derek Jarman. So see that. It looks very, I'm looking at um, stills of it, and it looks very like Alejandro Hodorowski, Holy Mountain. Um, yeah, I mean, it's of that year. It's a, it's definitely of that period. It's, yeah. um, less avant-garde in some ways actually like so if Jodorowsky is a little bit too much midnight movie for you this actually might be a little bit um it's a little bit more art house than midnight movie in a way that might work for some people more yeah but yeah I love both so yeah awesome Oliver Reed guys you know (laughs) yeah absolutely um so I I was trying to think of, of other stuff we haven't already recommended because I feel like um th- there's some obvious ones here i mean uh we've talked about nightbreed um mm-hmm. we just talked about Candyman. um if, if like the dark desire and horror stuff is is a thing you're into like absolutely candy man belongs in that list um mm-hmm. you know i, I think this esque yeah i think mm-hmm. there's something to be said for uh you know like a ginger snaps or uh jennifer's body in here as well um mm. uh i think i'm not a fan of the movie but there is a uh i mean speaking of ginger snaps there's a movie called american mary um which is directed by the Soska sisters um which is a an interesting horror movie about a uh a, a woman who uh played by Catherine isabel who's in ginger snaps uh who takes on the job of of doing um sort of 
body modifications, black market body modifications, and um, goes sort of down this really uh, deep, dark place uh, in this story. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's a little exploitative, but it is, um, I, I think, in the, sort of the same area and genre as, as what we get in the Hellraiser movies. Um, so it's, it's worth a look. Um, but uh, I guess also, I don't know, Emily should, uh, considering the writer and director, should people go watch the Fist of the North Star uh, live action movie? Hmm. Uh, I okay well th- th- I have a two th- two reasons one Dante Bosco yeah. two Malcolm mm. McDowell returning as a weird scary guy in a desert um if you're expecting anything like anything as just charming and uh iconic as the original Fist of the North Star um I'm sorry this is not that film, but the the there are some redeeming qualities of this movie, and it is definitely one of those movies that you just um, if you want to turn off your brain and watch something that is not the worst adaptation of an anime that I've ever seen, then yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, they involve Russian constructivism in a strange way, and I'm kind of here for it. Um, that it was not in the cartoon at all, but uh, they do it, and I'm 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 there. All right. Um, I guess uh, with that, uh, we'll get this wrapped up. Uh, Alana, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me with my podcast, Graphic Policy Radio, on every podcast platform where comics and politics meet. I interview comics artists and writers, much like the folks here on this podcast, um, as well as hosting roundtable conversations around comics related media and film etc um we just are putting together some episodes on loki and black widow right now so you can hear some expert takes on those from folks working in the reproductive justice fields and queer theory experts like in the same place that's kind of our lane for those movies and shows and we also have deep space dive where my friend co-host sarah daniel rasher and i uh, who, Sarah being a, a erstwhile professor of Shakespeareology, uh, we look at the subtexts and like just nerdiest possible analysis of Deep Space Nine, where a few other podcasts have gone before. We are putting up our episode where we send Keiko and Miles to couples therapy very shortly. <laughs> oh they God. sure did need it. Oh my God. Yeah. And, um, but like, but like through the lens of a friend of mine, who's actually like a social worker, like, so that's the kind of thing we do on that show. And as for me, you can always find me on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Awesome. And I, uh, I know I'll have to check out that uh, round table about Loki. I'd love to hear some queer theory experts talk about Sylvie. I feel like there's, there's a lot there to be, (laughs) to be discussed. Um, uh, ben, where can people find you online? You can find me online and mostly on Twitter at, at BenTheCon. Uh, you can find links to my work uh, through BenConComics.com. You can find most of it uh, through Amazon or on Comixology or where local books are stored. Are so are stored are sold story I, mean, I guess that's true as well if you yeah. i mean yeah if you wanted to stage a daring book heist i'm not gonna like i mean hell i'm not gonna rat you out you do it you put together that crew and you rob that barnes and noble warehouse <laughs> uh renegade rule is currently out in the stores and 
uh, the comic book tie-in to Immortals Phoenix Rising will be out uh, this September. Awesome, I just man. ordered a, a copy of Renegade Rule of, from my local independent bookshop. Ah, thank you so Highly much. Highly recommend it. Yeah. Yay. Um, for sure. Um, I may have gotten a sneak peek of it before that, but I like having things in person. But if you, I mean, you can't have my things in person as often. Um, so online will do. This is a really weird segue, but um, go for it. I'm I'm going for it. Segway. Mega Moth. M E G A M O T H on Twitter, Tumblr, Patreon, and the internet. Megamoth.net. I'm also um, Mega underscore Moth on Instagram. Mega period Moth on TikTok, where I do not quite exist yet, but there. You cannot be perceived yet, huh? I mean, I could be perceived. I just, I'm, I'm not doing anything unless you can see my likes. Um, and I got some good likes on there. So like the things I like, I don't know. No one can like what I have because I don't have anything. Um, so this is my, this is my TikTok TED talk. It's very important. Um, yeah. Now, as you listen to this, uh, if you are listening to it in August uh, or early September, you are uh, a short period away from free comic book day. Um, and you can probably get the uh, free comic book version of the um, the preview of our, our second book of school for extraterrestrial girls, uh, book two. It's uh, it's available in uh, you know special preview before the the real thing comes out in the next month or two. Um, so you know it's definitely worth checking out. It's got some new stuff from both me and the artist of that book, Jamie Noguchi. Um, so be sure to check that out if you can. Uh, in addition to that, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58. It's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. Uh, I am at jeremywhitley.com. And uh, the show itself, you can find on Patreon at patreon.com slash progressivelyhorrified, where we would love if you would help support us and get extra episodes of the show, including when we talk about the beloved Fast and the Furious movies. Uh, we have already three episodes up on there that you can listen to all about uh, the first three Fast and the Furious movies uh, with uh, Ben and Emily and myself and a few special guests. Um, we're also on Twitter at Prague Horror Pod, and our website is progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm where you can uh, rate and subscribe and review, and we would love it if you would do that. Um, I do want to take a chance to thank Alana again for joining us tonight to talk about uh, Hellraiser 2. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Alana. Thank you, Alana. Thank you, guys. It's yes, a pleasure. Thank you. I, thank you so episode, much. When this episode drops, I would love to um, recommend our going on Twitter and finding our playlist, which we will hopefully have out by then. So yes, I'll, I'll share the Spotify list with you. That is, I said, as for now, is four versions of the song Hell of a song called Hellraiser and two Judas Priest songs. So excellent. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Right, thank you. <laughs> thank you again so much. And uh, thank you so much for everybody else for joining us. And uh, we will see you next week. Until then, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified was created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emily Martin, and Alana Levin. 
All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Support us on Patreon or contact us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or email us at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.